<clears throat> Thank you, brother. Um, I got uh, Sammy on Facebook, and you guys are always out there laboring, um, calling people to repentance and calling them to have a hope in Christ. So, really appreciate what you all do. And I can't, uh, I, I've never been out there. I've never got to see what that is like. And I can only imagine the struggle uh, of watching them head on into the building there. Uh, definitely uh, need to you know, do whatever we can to try to help. Um, in our second uh, session here, we're looking at the reasons why sermons fail. And there's a variety of reasons, and, and not all of these are going to be uh, the only ones uh, as far as everybody uh, committing all of these. There's going to be some that maybe we can look at in our own life and see, uh, I struggle here, maybe uh, you've heard others to do these things. But these are, these are from, uh, some of these are from Alex Montoya, who was one of our, uh, uh, one of our professors uh, at the, the Master Seminary. So why do our sermons fail? And if, if you've done like I have, there's a number of times in which you, you get done preaching and then you, re you, you realize that now I've got to step over here and talk to people. I'd rather just run out the door. <laughs> uh, that was just awful. But uh, sometimes uh, the Lord indeed has mercy on us, uh, even in spite of our uh, failures. And thank, thank the Lord for that. But here's some of the reasons why our sermons fail. One, the speaker fails to distinguish between an essay and a speech. When you go to the pulpit, and I don't know what you take to the pulpit, you may take uh, maybe a sentence outline, you may take maybe a partial um, manuscript, you may take a full manuscript. Uh, whatever it is that is best for you and being able to communicate the Word of God, you know, then, then praise God for that. Whatever, whatever works best. Uh, but sometimes whenever we're writing out our sentence outlines or we're writing our, our uh, manuscripts, we're writing them out like an essay. We're not writing them out hearing ourselves preaching, hearing ourselves calling them to repentance or calling them to trust in Christ or calling them to behold their God. So we're writing it like an essay. So basically when you're standing behind the pulpit and you're reading your sermon... You might as well just be reading a book to your people. That's one reason why our sermons fail. We're so involved in the academic part of things that we write our sermons to be read rather than heard. Uh, second reason is that the speakers elaborate the obvious. We can be guilty of that. Uh, and when you elaborate the obvious, you elaborate... Uh, simply what's there without going any deeper or not looking at implications of things, it can easily perhaps bore an audience. Another reason is that we assault the dignity of the, of the audience. He says the speaker, must, <clears throat> the speaker must have the preaching as a privilege given to us by the congregation or see the preaching as a privilege given to us by the congregation. It is to pervert the pulpit and use it as a bullying pulpit. This happens when we talk down to people, 
Using difficult terms and concepts can be a means to talk down to people. The people you love the most can provoke you to wrath, and the result being that we berate them. You cannot take your frustrations out on the congregation. Our hearts must be right when we step into the pulpit. And he gives an example to consider how Paul opens up his epistle to the Colossians, or excuse me, to the Corinthians and the Galatians. Paul has some heavy words for the Corinthians, but he doesn't open up his his epistle to them uh, in anger or talking down to them or beating them down. <clears throat> we can't use the pulpit as as a way to bully people. We cannot use the pulpit as a, as a means to simply rebuke those that have upset us. And we have opportunity now to speak before everyone. And we're going to say those things that we know are going to penetrate to somebody else because they upset us. That is to pervert the pulpit. When we assault the dignity of the audience using all kinds of big $5 words as, as a way to elevate ourselves, I know this particular word and so I'm going to use this particular word and I'm going to be 95% sure that they are not going to know what I'm talking about but they're going to look at me and say wow what a big word he knows this big word we assault the dignity of the audience when we do such things like that again what is it that we're doing we're talking to the people whom we love and there are, there are many times, it even in making quotes of certain theologians, sometimes, especially when you're quoting guys like R.C. Sproul, sometimes you need to have a dictionary right there to, to understand what does that word mean, you know? But sometimes we have to break it down for ourselves, so why are we going to make quotes using big words to people knowing that we didn't know what it meant either? So often what, what I do, and perhaps that you do this as well, is that when you're quoting someone and you know there's a word right there that nobody's going to know, I just cross the word out and I put the meaning of the word and I read it as if he were saying that instead of saying whatever the word may have been. Uh, sometimes that occurs too in, in looking at uh, or reading some of the um, catechisms and confessions. Go ahead and we'll just cross that word out and actually put what the word means and so when i say it or i quote it to people they're 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 taking it all in and they're not all of a sudden being hindered and not hearing the rest of what i'm saying because they're hung up on a certain word that i said a fourth reason is the sermon has no point when the sermon does not have a point it's going nowhere and this is one reason why our sermons fail he says exposition is not just doing exegesis on a text, and that is drawing out of the text what, what the author is saying, his intent, all of that. Expository preaching is complete with specific direction. It has a clear purpose, and the purpose of the text is the purpose of the sermon. Every sermon should be summed up with a clear proposition. And make no, and by all means, make no mistake, it doesn't have to be some elaborate statement. I have to come up with some amazing statement to give the proposition of my sermon. The clearer you make it, sometimes the more simpler you make it, the better. Because again, everybody's going to know what you're saying, know what you're meaning when we, 
when we're being very clear in the words that we use, being very purposeful in the words that we use or the statements that we make. He says there's a clear difference in being an exegete and a preacher. When you're doing all your exegesis, yes, you're using the big words, you're getting the clear meaning, you have all of the the Greek words or the Hebrew words or whatever passage it is, if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're looking at all the definitions, you're getting everything together, but when you present it before the congregation, oftentimes you're not going over much of the things that you studied because you're taking these things and you're simplifying it to give the message. And that leads into the fifth thing is that we expect too much from the audience. We overestimate the congregation's ability to respond to our sermons. And we can commit errors. Montoya says, The long sermon demanding an hour or whatever time instead of what the church can handle. Long is not always better. A six-ounce steak is good, but a five-pound is too much. So be careful of the deep sermon. We expect our people to pay attention, but we do not try to capture their attention. <clears throat> so, hour-long sermons are not bad. Uh, that's not what he's saying. But what you're, you're preparing, you're preparing for your congregation as to what they can handle. What, what, how long can you hold their attention? How long can you capture their attention? And in the amount of time that you have, that's where you want to be the most effective. You want to be able to um, not, not uh, to have your people to wander off because you're so long-winded. And they, they just can't handle that. Now, now at our church, um, and your church may be the same, people can't handle an hour. They can handle a 50-minute sermon or an hour sermon. If you go to Christ Bible Church, you definitely can handle an hour sermon. But that's where you know your people. (laughs) But that's where you know your people. And you know what your people can handle. Uh, So you want to be mindful of how long that you have the attention of your people. Another reason why our our sermons fail is is really um, more so that uh, we get discouraged. Because we want the people to respond to us now. I preached this sermon. I've called them to whatever the response was. And now, respond. I want to see it. But here's what he says. He says, all preaching is conversational. We are talking back and forth. We invite them to enter into the questions We give rhetorical questions so that they will talk back within their minds. It's throwing the ball back and forth from the preacher to the audience. We give, and they will give back. And one of the the main things is as you are having this dialogue and you are uh, giving these rhetorical questions and you want to provoke thought into your people, and sometimes that, that comes in various ways of Sometimes you're exhorting your people. Sometimes you're comforting your people. Sometimes you're rebuking your people. But all in all, the people need to know, as he points out here, does this speaker, does this preacher care for me? 
We want people to respond now, and so we get aggravated. So it's like, does he, does he care for me? Uh, does, he, does he know and love me? If the audience doesn't feel like you do not care for them, they will, not, they will, they will put up a barrier, and they won't listen, and they won't respond. He goes on to say, another reason is that we do not know the techniques of persuasion. Now, we get into some of these areas where, like, I'm not so sure about that. Because we're so used to, perhaps, of uh, using churches using manipulation tactics in order to get people down to the pulpit. But the fact of the matter is this. You need to be persuasive. You do need to be persuasive. As the Apostle Paul says, you know, we persuade men. We want to be as persuasive as we can, recognizing, obviously recognizing, that it is indeed the Spirit of God that changes hearts or that transforms. We know that. We believe that and we trust that. But even Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Montoya says it's, it's trying to win the case as a lawyer. You're trying to win over the people by whatever the propositional truth is of this particular passage. Now I want to give it to you and I want to show you why it's true and I want to show you why it is that you need to be responding to this. And I want to be persuasive. And the way really to be persuasive a lot of times into is to be exalting of Christ and exalting of the glory of God. See how magnificent that He is. And here's what He calls you to do which pales in comparison to what He did. So we want to be persuasive. He says that emotion is the ultimate persuader. He's not talking about manipulation. He says when we take them from the mind to the heart, that is the emotional level. When, we take, when the people are taken here, they do not forget. And you take them there by expounding what the passage says. We're not trying to use... Again, manipulation tactics. We're not trying to give sappy stories in order to tug at the heart the heartstrings. How many of us have ever heard that story when someone has tried to bring up uh, the great price that was paid uh, of, of God giving the son? And we've heard the story of uh, the gentleman. I can't remember exactly how it goes. The gentleman who was supposed to switch the tracks at one time whenever the train's coming through. His son gets caught in the track. And it's either you let everybody die or you have to sacrifice your son and save the people. And so the man ends up sacrificing his son and allowing his son to die so that the others would be saved. So you, you start talking like that and you say things like that, one that doesn't even capture what it is that actually happened. Because in the story, the son is an unwilling participant wanting daddy to save me. In reality, when it comes to Christ, Christ is like, I'll go take care of this. But when you say things like that, what does it do? Especially as a, as a dad, you start pulling on the heartstrings and you start getting very emotional thinking, oh my goodness, what, how, how could I sacrifice my son? And so this is a tactic of, of bringing about emotion, but not emotion that is actually based upon truth. We want to tug at the heartstrings. We want to, again, aim at the heart. But you aim at the heart with truth. Always truth. And another reason is he fails to illustrate the sermon. 
You failed to illustrate the sermon. And I'll be honest with you, this is where I struggle. This is one of my struggles. One of my favorite preachers that I don't think anyone can touch this man when it comes to illustrating a sermon is Dale Ralph Davis. I don't know if you're familiar with Dale Ralph Davis. He's the evening preacher or the evening pastor at uh, Derek Thomas's church. And that man has illustrations for everything. And, and you think to yourself, where does he get all this? This is, this is, wow. But he is able, and this is one of his gifts, he's able to illustrate exactly what he's saying. Sometimes the illustrations are a little like, hmm, you know, he was talking to us in class one day and he was talking about this particular thing that happened and, and it's, it's hard to explain why it happened. And he said, it's like this man who was out in the desert and he had his, his rifle and he was, a, he was a soldier and he laid his rifle up against the tree and a snake wrapped around it and just happened to pull the trigger, killed the man. We don't know why it happened, but it happened. And you're like, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I, I get the illustration, but I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, but he's great at it. I mean, he is just phenomenal at giving illustrations. But we do need to make an attempt as best as we can to illustrate. He says, use words that appeal to the ear. Use words that paint the picture for the mind. It is a necessity and an art. The illustration gives light to the sermon. And the example he gives is when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Then the question is brought back, who is my neighbor? And then he begins the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate who is my neighbor. Now, illustrations can be stories like that, but you've got to be very careful that the story itself does not take the place of the truth that you're proclaiming. It can be a sentence. Dr. Lawson is fantastic with just very small, pithy statements just to illustrate, and, and, and you automatically get what he's saying. Especially when he's lecturing about preaching. When you're like, you got to have a good takeoff. But you can't keep flying your plane around. you got to land that plane. Like, little statements like that. And you're like, I get exactly what you're saying. You've illustrated everything that you've been saying to us thus far. So illustrations is very important. And it only helps. It only helps to bring out the meaning of the passage. And it can be something simple. It doesn't have to be elaborate. And I think that's one reason why we fail at this because we think I have to come up with some kind of an amazing illustration, some kind of an amazing story, something that's going to bring this out. And so we start looking at all kinds of things just to find anything that remotely resembles what's going on here. And all of our time is spent rather in the illustration rather than in the text and especially in the application part. It can be something very simple. It doesn't have to be uh, something phenomenal, uh, some kind of phenomenal story. Another reason why our sermons fail is because we're boring. That's, and that's a hard one because you don't want to be boring. And again, like Dr. Lawson says, if you're going to bore people, you bore people with Shakespeare. You don't bore them with the Scripture. You don't bore people with the Scripture when you're reading the Scripture, much less when you're preaching the Scripture. As John Reed Miller says, it should be an event when the Scripture is read. He didn't say when it was preached, but when it's read. 
Why are we boring? Well, we're boring because we lack passion. You have to have passion. If you don't have passion about the text that you're preaching, your people will not have passion either. Is there any excitement over the passage of Scripture that you are bringing out for your people? And the excitement, it, it starts with you. And it starts in your study. You know, looking at, uh, you know, Romans, for example. Romans is one of those that we all know, we all love. And we also have another running joke at the, at the church. It's like, where was it that the Lord said, you know, for God so loved the world? Uh, it's Romans 9. Uh, where did Jesus say that? It's Romans 9. <laughs> and we love Romans 9. We love Romans 8. And we get ourselves familiar with uh, some of those main passages like that. But I can say this, that from the time that we have started preaching through the book of Romans has been so exciting because you're actually giving much more attention to these passages of Scripture to where you're looking at them going, wow, this is amazing. That's why he was saying what he did. You know, he's indicting all, all of mankind in the, and we'll look at this later, but he's indicting all the Gentiles in Romans 1, and that's where we like to go to, especially when we're talking about the LGBT stuff, be like, it's right here in Romans 1. But then in Romans 2, it's as if he turns his attention now to his Jewish audience. Because he's almost using the same kind of approach as what Amos does in Amos's book. Amos begins his book, and he's saying, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke his punishment. And he goes through Damascus and he goes through Moab. He goes through Ammon. He goes through all of these. And he's anticipating that his Jewish audience is going to say, Amen, Amen. And then all of a sudden he turns his attention and says, For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke Judah's punishment. I will not revoke Israel's punishment. You agree right here. Now let me turn my attention to you. And Paul uses the same tactic in Romans 2. All, all of his Jewish brethren are going to agree with the condemnation of the Gentiles over here. But then he turns the attention and says, now you have no excuse. And you're like, wow, mm, that is some good stuff right there. Good job, Paul. Good job. And then as you're reading through it and, you, and, and you're seeing everything that he's saying and you're looking at the arguments that he's making, he's making the arguments based on what the, their mindset was in that day and you're just getting excited like, this is so amazing. And he's, he's using all of this in order to lead them into chapter 3 to give them the greatest news ever, which is Christ. I'm going to destroy every assurance that you have, every foundation that you have, and I'm going to give you the greatest hope that you've ever known. And so as you're seeing that in those first couple of chapters of Romans, you're like, wow, I can't wait to tell our people. And I'm not just being ridiculous here, you know, acting acting all goofy, but it really is exciting. And you get excited because I want our people to see this, and I want our people to know this. I want our people to see the argument here. This is amazing. And so the passion begins with you, and it begins in your study. You have to be passionate about what it is that you're, you're preaching to the people because this is God's Word. This is God's message to them. Some guys, they... They want to come across as being passionate, but their passion is 
or the misunderstanding of their passion is it's, it's more aimed at rebuking. It's more aimed like I'm passionate and I'm going to indict you. you know, I'm going to, to tear you down and I'm going to be passionate about it. You're going to see my, my irritation or whatever coming out as I'm speaking these things to you. And that's not passion. Again, you're assaulting the audience. Sometimes, and not to say anything bad, and I'm really not trying to, uh, sometimes Paul Washer can come across like that. But Paul Washer is a very gifted preacher too, and even though he assaults the will, he can still bring out the hope in the end. And we'll talk more about that, but there was one, one fellow who was coming to our church, and he would often say that you know, I've preached over here and I've preached over here and, you know, I'll be, I'll be happy to, to preach or to fill in if you need. And listening to some of the sermons that he did, it's, it's more like, no, sir. You're, you're, you're not going to do that. You're not coming uh, into our pulpit and speaking to our people the way that you speak to other people. We're, just, we're not going to do that. Why? Because we love our people. This person does not love our people. And when you have just that kind of a mindset that all I'm going to do is to rebuke and rebuke and you want to claim that it's your passion coming through, passion is having excitement and yes, it's having a sense of urgency and you want to warn, but at the same time, your passion should lead people to call upon God. Look at Look at what God has done for you. Give them the great comfort that is in, in the Lord, even though they are sinning. Yes, you're sinning, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We like passion because we don't saturate our sermons in prayer. Our sermons, to be effective, must be spirit-empowered. Must be. We can't do that. We can't try to pull something off like that. And so it is a constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, bless our efforts here. Speak to your people. Use me as an instrument in your hand. Let me exalt the name of Christ and nourish the souls of your people. We like... Uh, kind of going along with passion uh, itself, but having passion is also having conviction. You need to be, you need to have a conviction that the things that you are saying, the things that you are going over, are true. Because again, if your congregation does not believe that you believe what you're saying, they're not going to believe it either. If you have, uh, yeah, I mean, he says here, if you have trouble getting excited about your sermon, then, then you're not preaching with conviction. Our sermons <clears throat> also fail because we don't have compassion when we're preaching. He says, preaching is more than an exercise or an oratory. It's having a great, great love for the people. He says people 
are our business, our only business, and it's people that really matter. We're here to help. We're here to preach, to convert the sinner. He says, so we must sense their lostness and bring them to Christ. He preached to the wayward, the broken, giving them a soothing balm of Scripture to help. He preached to help the simple, to inspire the weary who are exhausted, who are exhausted from everything in life, giving them hope. And you need to find ways to maintain your compassion. Study study your heart out. Study your heart in particular. Because we're a mirror to those who we preach. And the best sermons that we often preach are the sermons that we preach to ourselves. You know, how many of you have had uh, folks in your congregation to come up to you afterwards and say, you stepped on my toes today. That was, that was a sermon for me. And you want to say, well, it was a sermon for me. Because the very things that I'm saying to you are things that, were, that, that, I, that I had to wrestle with and deal with in the, before I gave it to you. Things that I'm probably, probably still dealing with even in the moments of giving it to you. You know, there are times, especially when, when you're studying for a passage of Scripture and uh, studying for a sermon rather, and you have this passage of Scripture and you're looking at all the implications of it and you're getting everything together and you're excited about it. Sometimes that excitement, even though you're, you're writing out your manuscript and you're viewing yourself as, as preaching it and all of this, the excitement really coming out in the moment. Like uh, the, the passage itself that you've read over and you've read over throughout the entire week, all of a sudden whenever you read the passage, a flood of emotion just comes over you. It's not put on. But it's just a flood of emotion that comes over you as you're reading the passage and you're like, what a wonderful God that we have. Because you believe what you're saying. Many of these things start with you in your study, in prayer. Asking the Lord to, to empower the preaching of the Word of God. We need to preach with authority. We need to preach with uh, brokenness. We need to preach to the whole person. Preaching to the whole person. Montoya says, We are not a cadaver in a coffin. Preaching involves the heart, the eyes, the arms. We're preaching to the entirety of them and we're using the entirety of who we are to do it. Some of the most boring things is to stand there and just simply speak. And sometimes we start out that way because we're nervous. That's understandable. We get nervous. You know, somebody had told me, and I want to say, um, uh, maybe it was somebody in the, the homiletics class that I had at, at Grand Bible College in Bristol, that usually when you get before people, your heart's going and you have a hard time getting those first couple of words out. You know, he had told me, he's like, you just got to get your heart rate up. And then when you start to speak, you know, you'll be good to go. And so at Fountain of Life, they would have doors on either side that you would walk out, you know, from either way to come up to the pulpit. So I would be back in the back hammering out some push-ups, you know. And then you come out and be like, this ain't working. <laughs> I done messed up now. <laughs> but it does get you a little amplified, though. Like my heart's going, I gotta move my arms now. But you do want to use the entirety of who you are. You want to use your voice, you want to use your eyes. 
You want to speak to your people. And when you can speak to your people and you're looking at them and they know that you love them, then, then, then what you're saying and, and your passion and your conviction as you're looking at them is going to have a greater effect. Because they know that you're not, you're not preaching to a pulpit. You're preaching to them, your people. And some of the things to be watchful of, especially with, um, with sermons and then preaching and learning to preach and all of that, is you have to be you. Because if you're not you, and you're trying to act a, a, like somebody else, that's going to be one of the reasons why your sermon will fail, because the congregation is going to say, you're just trying to act like so-and-so. You're just trying to be like so-and-so. You need to, to be you, who you are, your personality. Uh, and that's, that's one of the reasons why you don't need to just listen to one particular preacher. Everybody has usually their favorite. You know, you, you have a favorite one that you listen to or that you read or, or whatever. But you also need to have a variety that you're not hearing this one particular man preach and that you're trying to mimic what they're doing. Like, I love Dr. Lawson. Dr. Lawson and his, his preaching is just, you know, you sit there and you go, wow. You know, I remember... The first time I'd ever heard Dr. Lawson, I was everybody's familiar with MacArthur, big MacArthur fan, of course. But me, Damon, and uh, another gentleman, Stephen, Stephen, we all went down to an expositors conference in Chattanooga, and Dr. Lawson was, I think, that year he was uh, lecturing on, I think, he was preaching through the Psalms, maybe something like that. Um, I forget what it was. It was something like that. But he would preach that evening. So you would, you would have the lectures throughout the day, and then the evening would come, and then uh, those of the church that, uh, that this was being held at, all the congregation would come, and you would have service, and Dr. Lawson would be preaching. That was the first time that I had ever heard him preach, and I'll never forget it, he preached Psalm 22. And when he preached Psalm 22, you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, that's what preaching is supposed to be. That's what it is. Because Dr. Lawson is phenomenal. It's like some guys, you know, you have high, low, high, low throughout the, the entirety of their sermon. Dr. Lawson's like up here and he just remains. He's just a wonderful preacher. But listening to Dr. Lawson all the time, you end up trying to mimic Dr. Lawson and you cannot mimic Dr. Lawson. So you have to have other men that you trust as well to listen to, to be fed by. Uh, to hear how they handle a certain pa uh, passage of scripture. So for for me, and I, uh, and these are guys that you, you probably like too. I love hearing uh, Derek Lawson, or excuse me, Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas is a great preacher. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, Alistair Begg. Um, th those guys. And you have, they all have different personalities. Of course, you're listening to Dr. Lawson. Um, you know, those guys all have different personalities. They all have different ways that they handle the text and approach the text. The interpretation is the same. But you can, you can learn from different ones, trusted preachers. And, and, and that, that is a good thing. Hearing other preachers is a good thing. Uh, men that are... That are uh, trustworthy to handle the text correctly 
So you need to be you. Your style needs to be you. Because that's who the people love. When they're talking to you out, uh, out in the aisle or whatever, or they're talking to you. They love you. They love your personality. And then they desire to hear you from the pulpit. So we don't all of a sudden turn on a switch when we step behind the pulpit and <clears throat> and all of a sudden we get real proper. And all of a sudden we start saying God as we never would say God. And we start using different ways of speaking like that. Speak how you speak. Now there is a level there that you need to speak to the audience in the sense of you don't want to sound ignorant. You want to keep their focus on, on what you're saying and so the words that you use are very important and the style that you bring across is very important as well. But all in all, your personality needs to be you. You don't need to try to mimic anyone. God has gifted you. God has called you. And he has called you not to mimic somebody else, but to be who you are that he has created you to be. And last thing, uh, before we close out uh, this session, um, one of the other ways uh, that is very helpful in order to uh, develop passion, not only in the study of your sermon in the preparation, but in your other study time. You need to be studying uh, other, other times just, uh, just to feed you, to feed your soul, to grow your understanding of God. And some of the best things, at least for me, I'll say this for me, is, is studying theology. I love, I love reading theology. I love uh, reading uh, systematic theology books. I love taking certain, um, certain topics and, and, and just studying and reading. And there are some great systematic theology books that are out there, uh, like from Dr. Beakey. I love Joel Beakey. He, I should have mentioned him a moment ago. He's one of my favorite preachers too. His systematic theology book, or you have a Wayne Grudem, which is very readable. You have the classics like Lewis Burkhoff. You need to feed yourself with, with the knowledge of who God is while you're looking and studying systematic theology. As me and one brother was talking about earlier, you need to be seeing how the unfolding of theology occurs within the Scripture too and how each, each thing fits together so that you're seeing how God has revealed himself to others. It's growing your knowledge of God. It's growing your understanding of God, growing your faith in God as you see how he has worked throughout all history with his people until the culmination of Christ. There are so many things to learn and so many things to, to try to tackle, but it only affects your heart even more, and it grows your excitement of the God whom you serve. As A.W. Tozer says, right, the most important thing that comes to our mind is what we think about God. Right? Well, if we don't know who he is, then we're going to have some very difficult time in trying to preach to people of just how glorious that he is. But if we are putting our time in to study and study for ourselves to feed our own souls, then that's going to produce an even greater passion too. And theology is meant to ignite the heart. Make no mistake. Theology is not just to fill your head. For example, in we all, we all love the doctrine of election. Everybody loves the doctrine of election. Well, if you're reformed, you do. Um, you take this you take this very important this very important doctrine of scripture, 
And we use it often. We use various passages of Scripture in order to argue a point or to look at others and say, well, that doesn't fit well within the Scripture because God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, God controls all things. And if God controls all things, then what he says here is he chose everyone from the foundation of the world. We use it as a way to argue and to debate. But that's not why Paul wrote it. When you're looking at Ephesians 1, and he gives his introduction, when you're looking at the Greek text, verses 3 to 14 is one long, continuous sentence. As if he can't wait to blurt it out. I can't wait to tell you this. Is almost the impression that you get. <clears throat> but he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And we usually stop there. But look at the next verse. To the praise of of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Paul brings up the doctrine of election not as a means to say, wow, look at this. This is something for you to fill your, your mind with and to meditate upon. How can this be? How does it all fit together? Etc., etc. Paul is saying, I'm bringing this up so that your praise of Him will be amplified. So theology is not just supposed to be what we're filling our minds with. Theology is supposed to be igniting the heart. And as we come to learn and we come to grow in our understanding of God and of Christ and of man and of sin and all of the, the disciplines of, of systematic theology specifically, one that's going to help us in our interpretation of Scripture because that's the guardrail that keeps us from moving out into some left field idea, but it also allows us to see within each passage of Scripture what some of the things are, what some of the doctrines that are being taught there, and to be able to bring that out within the sermon as well. Again, to give the people a greater sense of the God whom you're preaching to them. But it all starts with you. If we can work on these things, uh, working on developing our, our convictions and our passion and our love for Christ and our love for His Word, and then our love for our people, then the way in which we preach to them and the way that they receive it uh, is going to be night and day. If they know that you love them, they know that you believe what you're saying, they see your love of Christ as you're delivering it to them, that has lasting impact. So those are some of the things to, to consider. And I know that's a lot. And like I said, with a lot of these notes especially from, um, from Lawson and um, Alex Montoya. You're more than welcome to, to have these. Um, just let us know and we can get them uh, sent to you. But we'll end right there, and then we'll, we'll start our next session here shortly.